today I'm joined by George Coxon. He is a member of the Mental Health Nursing Association Organising Professional Committee and I've known George now for a good few years. Previously, past chair of our excellent committee. So hi, George. Hello. Now, George, I know you've got lots and lots of different strings to your bow. Just give us a few ideas of different bits of work you do. My clinical background was as a mental health nurse for many years, working in different roles in the southwest of England, although I trained in the northeast, of course. I left clinical practice, I think, to work in Bristol in the health authority in the 90s, and then took on a divergence and worked in commissioning and different jobs within the southwest. Ended up in Devon, worked for many years as a commissioning lead for all kinds of services, but maintained a sort of very strong involvement and commitment to mental health work, hence involvement with the, the MHNA. More recently, however, I've been a care home owner since 2005. We have two small non-nursing care homes in the southwest, looking after people living with advancing frailty and dementia. And equally, also within my portfolio have been involvements with, for example, the Academic Health Science Network in the southwest. I'm an elected member of the Sustainability and Transformation Partnership Board within Devon and also have an awful lot of involvement with the Devon County Council, so the local authority. And I'm an elected member of the Provider Engagement Network Reference Group. So it's a multiple range of connections across health and social care, really. But primarily, my main area of interest and work these days is around the looking after the people we care for in our care homes. I know we've been obviously focused quite heavily on COVID-19 over the last few weeks and, and turning into months. Our most recent mental health nursing journal is a focused journal on COVID-19. You've got an article that looks at the work that you do in care homes and the link to COVID-19. Today, I just wanted to catch up with you and talk about that in a bit more detail. How's it going for you at the moment? Well, I hesitate to say it's going well, but it is. I mean, we're doing okay. We're full. Our beds are filled with people who are living well. Every life remains strong and solid and there's good atmospheres and our staff are doing really well. I would say, however, it's not the same for everyone. We are virus free, however, so our sort of hypervigilance and our sort of manner in which we're following the ever-changing guidance, which in itself is quite challenging, of course, as, as it's been well documented. But... Um, but amongst the many care homes in the southwest, I think at the moment we, we have a story that something like 11% of the 500 or just short of 500 care homes in Devon, that's including Plymouth and Torbay. So it's, it's a big population of about in excess of you know, well over a million people. We have about 50 plus care homes. Uh, so as I say, about 11% of care homes that are dealing with an outbreak. So for as long as it can continue, we would like to think that we can carry on as we are, but we know that's going to be difficult. And I think an awful lot of care homes across the country have really found it very, very tough. Care homes have been in the press quite a bit over the last few weeks. And Mac Hancock came out with a statement that a protective ring had been thrown around care homes. What do you think of that? I think it's, in, it's not true, of course, as many of us would say. I think there's a lot of mixed messages, a lot of, uh, how can I put it politely? I think that I think there's a, a good, there's a lot of good intention, but in terms of retrospect, what happened and what has been happening for care homes is the protection of the NHS has been to the detriment of social care. I think that's also been well described by people that are in the system and like myself, that we were 
thinking that we were doing the right thing to accept unsafe discharges from hospital, for example, that hadn't been tested where the swabbing for people wasn't sufficient. And even now, I think there's still a difficulty about that. So accepting discharges, people who are medically stable and ready to come out of hospital and moving into a care home has been, I think many people have talked about lambs to the slaughter or, you know, kind of um, that um, it's just meant that the virus has spread very easily amongst that, some of the most vulnerable, if not the most vulnerable people in our communities. And I think that's been, in retrospect, that was a big mistake. And I think the testing principle, the World Health Organization and others have been promoting for some time. I think we're still playing catch up. And I think it's still far from perfect for many, many people. I think there's access to test is being still difficult. I saw the other day that there's been some comment from Hong Kong where I think there's been no care home death, uh, the rigorous approach that they've taken. Have you seen any of the information there and kind of compared it with the situation in, in England? I've not seen that particular um, example, but I know, I mean, we're, we're so... Um, you know, I'm playing, I'm trying really hard to talk, playing catch up in terms of the amount of information. I mean, I'm reading guidance and evidence and science and information and articles. I'm a, I'm a huge follower of the British Geriatric Society, for example, who write very sensible, useful things. Of course, Public Health England and the CCGs and the guidance that emerged from, from government it, it, it has been changing a lot. And I think when we're looking outwardly, about which areas and which countries have done the best. We know that the story is very variable. And I think that for us in England and in the UK, not just England, I mean, I'm operating working out of England, but I know our areas, you know, we look at what's happened in Scotland and we know that half of the deaths in Scotland have taken place in care homes. And I believe that there are reports and figures that suggest that a third of deaths in England have been uh, have taken place in care homes. And I know that 31,000 deaths in care homes took place. We had 31 deaths, uh, 31,000 deaths in April of which 11,000 were attributed to COVID or included COVID as cause of death. And yet, yesterday, there were figures to say that overall, this was in the briefing last night, overall, we've only seen 11,500 deaths since the start of the outbreak. So I think the messages and the, the numbers tend to be misdescribed or variable. So I've not seen the report from Hong Kong, but I know that um, the devastation amongst care homes is fairly global. I don't think it's unique to, to Britain. But I think there are some countries that have done better than others. And we do need to learn from those that have protected care homes more effectively and make sure that, you know, if we see a second wave, which many of us do anticipate now that we're relaxing lockdown, I think we need to make sure that we do better at supporting and protecting those people living in residential care. And just looking at Parliament yesterday, there was discussions in the Health Select Committee, Professor Martin Green of Care England, saying that people were, like you said, most at risk of dying of COVID should have been prioritised from the beginning and highlighting the fact that that just hasn't been the case in care homes. One of the, the comments that he made was that the response to COVID, care homes had the hands tied because data about outbreaks in the sector was not publicised until the end of April. And then looking at Liz Kendall in the House of Commons yesterday saying how over 23,000 more people have died in care homes this year compared with 2019. And she asked Matt Hancock about the issue of personal protective equipment, PPE. Mm. Now, in terms of the contacts that I've had from our members working primarily in the NHS, PPE has obviously been a huge issue and certainly hugely problematic through this whole crisis. What's the situation been for PPE in care homes? 
I think it's been very variable. I'm involved in a lot of regular webinars and briefings and virtual meetings of one sort or another. And we were talking yesterday, and I think even within Devon, there's a variable kind of mixed story. I mean, I've got to confess it's a little bit of, I hesitate to use the term every man for himself, but it, it does feel a little like that. I think we've done pretty well. As I said, we're virus free. So at the moment, we aren't ratcheting up our use of protective uh, equipment of the various sorts. We're, we're following the guidance, which has been variable but I think across the country it's been again I, I know it's a dangerous quote but it's been shambolic to be frank and I think even now I see and follow various whatsapp descriptions of places and I think what's happened to them with the best intentions has been to supporting the NHS but it's meant that they've been very deprived and neglected in so many ways and I think for PPE as I said it, it's a very variable feast really and I think there are still problems and difficulties about that certainly since the guidance changed from Public Health England at the end of April that required all of us to be wearing surgical masks at all times in care homes. And I think that in itself has been very challenging, both for residents and for staff. And in my care homes, when I'm visiting, um, which I'm doing much less than I would normally do, I'm wearing a mask and it feels really hard. It feels difficult in all sorts of ways about the culture and the lack of visible smiling for residents. And I think people living with dementia however much we explain and try to normalise it by including the residents themselves in wearing masks and making light of it and trying to describe the fact that we're all, you know, we're trying to keep the bug out and it's a very dangerous one. It just feels very difficult. It's kind of changing the nature of residential care significantly and it's very sad. But PPE, it continues to be a background for so many and I think it's going to continue, especially now that we're seeing the relaxation of restrictions and more and more demand which is going to push the price up of the PPE that's available. Personally, so far, we've got a, a reasonable stock of masks, of gowns, of gloves, of the necessary, even visors. And what is also really appreciated, and I think care homes would all say this, when people make donations of, of any, anything from a, a kind word to, um, to donations of masks and equipment and some things that can improve the quality of life of both our residents and our staff, then that's extremely appreciated. But PPE is a, is a, is a problem. I know I've said that several times now, and it's true. I know one of the things that I was picking up was the way that PPE obviously has been so in demand in the NHS that often uh, care homes have had to divert their stocks to the NHS first, but obviously yeah. now need it themselves and it's no longer there. So hopefully, like you say, if we learn from this in terms of second wave and future crisis, that mm. hopefully we'll do much better for those that have suffered and lost their lives because of those decisions that, that they won't benefit. It was slight after the, certainly the initial phases when we were being described as the second front line. I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that we are absolutely and always were the front line uh, in the same way as the NHS. I know that there's an element of difficulty. When Jeremy Hunt was speaking last night on the news with David Behan as well, who's been interviewed, he's the, the previous chief executive of the Care Quality Commission, now he's chair of HC1. But when Jeremy Hunt was talking last night, it was difficult not to wince when he talked about the fact that he was only the Secretary for Health and social care for the last six months of his tenure, when in fact we all know that that was not true. And it's very difficult to hear what he's saying without grimacing and feeling that there's a significant amount of disingenuous kind of comments being made by people that should have been doing more to protect social care for longer. And the consequences of that now are that perhaps we might see a shift in a genuine integration and a genuine equalising of the inequities across the system, because we know that we are looking, we've got more vacancies, we've got more staff, we've got more people that we look after 
in social care. I mean, we've got in excess of 400,000 people living in the 15,500 care homes across England and Wales. And we just know that we've needed the support. And, and you and I have spoken, as many of us have, about the, the lack of a solution to the social care dilemma and difficulty for many, many years. And we know that it's been delayed and kicked into the long grass. And I think hopefully one of the outcomes, one of the legacies from all of this, when we get to the end of it, might be a greater priority given to the need to sort out our social care services and, and care for people that need it. Certainly the point that you made on Jeremy Hunt, it was very frustrating when a couple of weeks ago he was talking about the delays that are happening in terms of mental health services and the, the problems that we'll face from COVID. Um, we actually submitted a, a response to the Health Select Committee pointing out the fact that there'd been a massive cut in the number of mental health nurses. Mm. Uh, and that had been on his watch, you know, as Health Secretary that we'd seen that. And actually that's going to mean that our recovery from this will be much slower and much harder because of the legacy that he left us with in the mental health service. Mm. One of the other things that you just mentioned, the bit about the, the under-prioritisation of social care services and staff, I think it's been really fascinating to look at some of the, the kind of commentary on why people feel that some parts of the social care service has been so badly hit over the last few weeks. And that point about low-skilled workers having a very poor support in this country and seeing the number that do it as bank shifts across large yeah. numbers of providers. So they're having to jump from one care home to the next care home, to the next care home to make any kind of living. Yeah. And that real false statement about it being because they're low-skilled. And actually yeah. the issue is that they're low-paid and the money that we put into care services is nowhere near enough. I yes. suppose you'd agree with those points, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we know that when social care carrying vacancies, if it's one and a half, 1.6 million people, it's always arguable to work out what the precise numbers are. But when we're carrying a 10% vacancy rate and we have a 30% attrition, so numbers of people leaving the services from social care because of us being the poor relations, I think it's no surprise that certainly in big cities, and I know it was very headlined yesterday on the front page of The Guardian, and I think I've been interviewed later today to talk about that very point about you know, the transmission vectors of the virus have been much more about the temporary staff. And I, and I, as a care home owner working in the independent sector, I resist ever accepting that we make a profit. We never make a profit. We have to operate with a surplus. Otherwise, the Care Quality Commission would regard us as unviable. So we have to maintain our work. And I know the model is controversial in many ways, and I have some mixed feelings, if not strong opinions about big corporate organizations like HC1 and like Barchester and Four Seasons and others that operate with their affairs out of the Cayman Islands, for example, and pay their staff, their executives and directors, colossal amounts of money and who tend to regard the work that they do, the people that they look after as commodities. And, and I feel very upset about how that can be portrayed, that we're all tarnished or tainted with the same view but i've got to tell you that the involvement that the people i work with and know well we're very very immersed we have no off button we have a massive amount of input and commitment to the work that we do with our with our services and i think it's a very diverse world we need to maintain it and i you know i spoke to one of our local mps at length on monday talking to her saying that really one of the outcomes from this is we need to make sure we protect um care provision for the future because so many care homes were already on the brink prior to COVID and I think a lot of them are now being pushed over the edge so we will see a catastrophic impact on the provision of care for people in the future and I fear for that I think there's there are real parallels 
in terms of the poor relations that we have between social care, maybe particularly care homes and domiciliary care and supported living and mental health care. We are often the outsiders. We're often the marginal, often the afterthought in some of the thinking that goes on. And I've, I know you and I and many of us have talked about the inequities even within health in how mental health care equates to 22% of the demand but only attracts 12% of, of resource. So I think we've, we have some real inequities that need some attention. And I think mental health care and social care are partners in how we make a stronger case for better equality in how we support both services and both kind of aspects, because they're intertwined, of course, aren't they? And here we are in Mental Health Awareness Week, you know, we're all talking about how do we reflect the kind of the issues properly and fully and how do we influence, you know, speaking uh, truth to power and how do we get a greater commitment rather than find words from safe distance from people that really don't understand. And I think that's one of the problems for care homes. And you won't be surprised to hear me say this, that I'm absolutely determined right now to make sure that we reflect some of the success stories from care homes, some of the survival stories, some of the things that we're doing well already. The copious amounts of people that have got an opinion about care homes, which have often not been favourable. Most people have a view and experience that suggest care homes are you know, places that we should avoid at all costs. But we've got to try and say to people, actually, when the time is right and when people need 24-7 care, that should be available to them. And I think I'm quite keen, as best I can, to make some positive noise about the fact that cultures and atmospheres, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, it remains for the majority of care homes, even those that are dealing with the virus, you know, we're still maintaining normal everyday life and maintaining laughter and smiling and fun. And it's, they're not leper colonies, care homes. They, we need to protect them. We need to support them. And we need to make sure that they have a, a sustainable future. Otherwise, I think when we all reach our older, old age, and we're all, many of us living into our late 80s and 90s now, and many people in their 80s and 90s living with significant frailty and dementia, I think we're going to need to make sure we, we are able to look after those people as well as we can. So 15 and a half, 16,000 care homes, I know that number is going to significantly fall away. As I said, many care homes have been on the edge for some time. I know some care homes local to Devon already describing themselves as not being able to maintain their business. They're not being able to, to, to see new arrivals, new admissions or placements into care homes. And I think that's putting their services at, at huge peril. It would be so positive to imagine that one of the good things that can come out of this horrendous crisis is that we remake society along more positive lines and we recognise, celebrate and reward the parts yes. of society that haven't been, certainly over the last 10 years of austerity. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's that anxiety and anxiousness that we won't see that and we'll see a similar retrenchment that happened after 2008. And I think yeah. there's the news out last week suggesting that public sector workers would face another pay cut in the yeah. future to pay for COVID. Mm. It was shocking. One of the other things I wanted to talk about today is, as you say, it's uh, Mental Health Awareness Week. And the focus this week, the, the theme is kindness. How do you feel that kindness relates to COVID and the current crisis in care homes? It's interesting you mentioned this, and I'm smiling only because I've done a number of presentations to, to big audiences recently, and I think in my closing remarks, I always talk about three key messages, and I, I say something about reinforcing best practice and hypervigilance, reassuring people that, and, and inspiring people and reassuring people in terms of saying, 
that care homes are not terrible places to be. And then my final point is about the importance of being kind. And I know we've all talked about that. And, I, and I've spent so many years now, Dave, before kindness was trendy, talking about it's such an important characteristic of when we recruit people into care homes. And I talk about five key characteristics, enthusiasm, so being keen is important. I talk about initiatives, so people having the ability to be creative and imaginative in the work that we do, working in a team, being reliable and being kind. And I suppose I've, I've, taught, I've written articles about this and I've kind of embedded it in the value set and the belief sort of principles about how we develop that inspiration, how we talk about be kind in everything you do all the time, be tolerant, be forgiving, smile. You know, there's so many things said about this, but I think how do we build that into our, into our humanist thinking, the nature of tolerance of others? and forgiveness, as I've said. And I think those are the kind of words that, for me, associate with the nature of being kind. And I think when you're looking after a, an older person with dementia, and you can enable them to have a smile, and even have a laugh, and find a conversation, reach the hard to reach, find a way through the fog of dementia with someone who's living with advanced dementia in a care home. I think the nature of close contact in those situations with those with people that, that deserve our support is, is, is steeped and central to that is the nature of kindness. So I'm really pleased that we're seeing that as being absolutely headline to what we're all aspiring to. And I think maybe we're not perfect, but the, there's a genuineness and it comes again tracks back to the nature of what humanism means and what the work that many of us have been very immersed in over many, many years from Carl Rogers to many of the inspirational leaders about this principle. But how we enable people to believe that people are basically good, people you know, have the capacity to change for those people that are struggling and that we've got that sort of kindness is, is an essential element about not judging people, you know, being warm toward people having a kind of positive regard, you know, all those things that Rogers talked about. And I think that's where kindness in relation to mental health care and, of course, social care is kind of core to the whole nature of it. So I don't know if all that makes sense, Dave, but it's the sort of stuff that I genuinely believe. And I think, you know, if we summarise it in, in one word and that one word is kind, then I'm, I'll sign up to that. Well, I think there's not much better place to leave our conversation today. Just for anyone listening in, we are running a live mental health TV Facebook live session on Thursday, the 21st of May, and that's going to be on the theme of kindness. So if you are listening to this before then, please do join. It's at 7pm on the MHNA Facebook page. If you're listening after Thursday, then please do go back and the session will be recorded. So George, thanks for your time today. Hopefully see you soon.